Welcome back to another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Since 2014, My Latin Life has been your trusted guide to traveling and living in Latin America. Today, I'm joined by Dan Andrews. He's known for his work with Tropical MBA, Dynamite Circle, and most recently, Dynamite Jobs. Dan, welcome. How's it going, man? It's going great. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And you're in uh, Barcelona right now? I am. So yeah, if you hear the din of the traffic below, it's uh, full summer tourist season here in Barcelona. And uh, it's been three years since I've been here. It's just awesome to be back and see the city back to normal and everybody out there having fun in the streets. That's awesome. I, I got to be completely honest with you. It's um, This is almost the, the podcast I've been most nervous to do. And I've, I've done like 40 of them so far. And it's because you're basically an elder statesman in the digital nomad community. You're, you're an absolute pioneer, an absolute legend. It's funny. Some dudes came to my events. Uh, we had an event in Playa del Carmen recently. And the comment was like, oh, I didn't know you guys were so old. <laughs> it's like, yeah, dude, I'm 40. It, it's almost like I'm, I'm interviewing Charlie Rose or, or, or Letterman or something like that. I'll take it. Not yeah, even, a even shitty digital that. nomad Letterman. <laughs> and it's not just the age thing. It's you've, uh, so tropical MBA for people who are unaware, uh, is your guys podcast. You've done almost 600 episodes. You started in 2009. Your first yep. episode was published, uh, July 29th, 2009. And you guys have been relatively consistent uh, throughout that time. So you've been you've been podcasting a pretty long time. So I'm just trying to keep up. That's right. I had like the old iPad brick as a gift from my boss and business partner. And I had like a two hour commute. So I was just like mainlining podcasts about how to do internet marketing. And at a certain point, it was like every podcast was like the way you make money on the internet is tell other people how to make money on the internet. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I sell cat furniture. So that message stopped resonating with me. And so when we started getting traction with the cat furniture business and then industrial furnish business, and these were like e-commerce businesses, mm -hmm. I was like, man, we should talk about this uh, because everybody else is just like selling Dan Kennedy sales letter stuff. And uh, it was also fun just to be a part of the community. Like you listen to podcasts for three or four hours a day. So it's like, well, why don't we record one once a week? And it was basically that simple. And, um, yeah, it really got traction. I think it really resonated with people. It was, as far as I can tell, it, it was the, f the first story of people building a location independent product business on the web. That was like a consistent story, not just like a forum post or something. So it was the cat furniture, which I'm guessing is like those, those towers <laughs> that people put in their houses. And there yep. was also the, uh, the portable bar company. Yep. Yeah. Which I which still exists. Yeah still exists and you guys were basically you know sourcing the the parts from china so also being pretty early and you know uh not drop shipping but like working working with china sourcing from china that's right yeah i mean you know like how there's like these business idea waves like where you can just use a basic rule of thumb like back in 2006 it was like you would look at a piece you would look at a product and you'd be like i wonder if that's made in china yet you know, and then you'd like poke around and, and, and if you could make it in China, now all of a sudden you got like a much bigger marketing budget, you got much more margin. Um, and that was just basically a business opportunity. So we just like look around and we found these valet parking podiums, some dude in like 
you know, central California was welding them together with a bunch of workers from Latin America. And we were like, why isn't this made in China yet? And so that was one of our first business ideas as well. And yeah, it immediately opened up our eyes to, oh, this is kind of interesting. Like we can do manufacturing for less than half the cost. Like I wonder what else we can do. We can build websites in Vietnam and we can have our customer support be in Philippines. And we started going to Asia to do this sort of more businessy stuff. And then the lifestyle stuff was immediately apparent as well. Definitely. And I want to help give people a little bit better of an idea. So I'm just going to read out some of the titles of the uh, podcast episodes from the early days. So I've gone back oh, shit. all the way to the first page. Uh, and so uh, podcast episode number two, 10 signs you are a lifestyle entrepreneur or lifestyle designer. <laughs> Three, 10 unexpected benefits of quitting your job. Four, flash packers travel the world while running their businesses. <laughs> Um, seven flash packer didn't stick around <laughs> flash packer. I mean, you, at least you tried to coin something, um, seven common sources of passive income for lifestyle designers. Um, you know, 14, our four hour work week success story. Um, 17, six shady business practices we use to grow our business. Uh, 16, I missed this one, baselining and creative startup scenarios in Asia. And it keeps going. Um, I think we lost, lost our pop and our copywriting, man. That's, that's not bad. I'll take that's, it. That, I'll is, that is not bad. I mean, that's <laughs> definitely not bad. Uh, 2010, episode 32, create a $6,000 a month site in five months and tips on niche selection. Uh, so like people, any sort of like niche site, you know, SEO marketer guy today knows what's going on. But in 2009, 2010, these must have been extremely new and foreign concepts. It's almost like um, it's almost like when you read like the four hour work week and you and you read about like virtual assistants and stuff like that. Now, like if someone read that the four hour work week right now, they'd look at it and they'd be like, OK, there's nothing too groundbreaking here. But it's because he had to. Tim Ferriss had to break the ground and like tell everyone about these concepts. And now it's just such uh, common knowledge. Totally. Absolutely. That That's absolutely true. I mean, similar to, I remember when people were baffled at the concept of manufacturing in China. So like these trends of concepts, they end up mattering a lot. Like, because if you understand something early, you can build traction with that knowledge that's rare and valuable and that traction can end up sustaining you. Uh, like in, in our case, like it would be much harder for us to like, we couldn't start a podcast about this topic now and build the audience we've built. We would have to understand something new about the world important. Mm -hmm. And I think kind of understanding that a lot of people got their start by understanding something new and important about the world it's kind of, you know, what you're doing here, you're doing kind of like an archaeology of history. And I think it's valuable because it can give you that sense of bravery for to like commit to something that you believe in is going to stick around for a while. I mean, for me, like when I ended up, you know, moving to Asia and running a location independent business, it was like, man, I can like sink my teeth into this. This isn't going anywhere. You know, it was clear to me that it was worth planting my flag in. Yeah, and I had to look up when the Four Hour Work Week came out, uh, just to see how that lined up with your podcast. So the Four Hour Work Week came out in two thousand and seven, mm -hmm. and then you guys were publishing your podcast in in two thousand nine. Did you start 
you know, the the online business journey prior to April 24th, 2007? Or were you directly inspired from that book and took immediate action? That's a good question. I got to look back to what domains we were already in motion on stuff. I just don't remember exactly what. Um, like I had a, you know, PayPal account and I had, you know, a GoDaddy account and we had e-commerce stores. I remember reading the four hour work week. We weren't like living that life yet. We were in debt. We had jobs. We were broke. Um, we probably had some side hustles and it was very, very clarifying reading that book. I remember thinking like, that's it. That's it. Because at my job, I had hired web developers who like worked from home. We've been doing the manufacturing in China thing. And I was on like early VA stuff, trying to figure out ways to get my side hustles traction while I still had to work all day long. And when I remember reading that book, and it was a, it was a life changing moment. I called multiple friends on like page 90 and was like, <laughs> dude, you got to read this. And Ian, my business partner, was the one who actually read it. And we sat down on a beach in San Diego a few weeks later and did our dreamlines. And it was like crazy shit. I, I still have it in my uh, uh, my parents' house. There's this old notebook with like a palm tree on the front of it. And we wrote in shit like I wanted a laptop. Like I didn't have a laptop at the time. Um, like, like forget about, you know, iPhones <laughs> or whatever. Like smartphones wasn't a thing and they weren't useful in the way they are now. Um, just basic ideas like the freedom to define how we spent our days and where we spent them, you know, seemed both like a complete dream, but also sort of possible, you know? And so we were like, kind of, it felt like a very bold thing to write that stuff down at the time. And so maybe nowadays it just seems, um, pretty basic, but for two like working class kids, like who just basically didn't have more than a couple weeks in my entire life of freedom at that point, like in terms of like deciding what I did. Um, like that book represented a complete turning point for me. It just really crystallized what was on my mind. How did you meet Ian, your business partner? I hired him. <laughs> I was at the time uh, a very young, like VP of operations of a small manufacturing company. And in California, right? Yeah, we had 35 employees, so it's a little bit of a decorative title that my boss and mentor gave to me because I had just, you know, put so much soul into that job. I worked really, really hard. The economy was really good at the time, and we were kind of pumping with like the retail expansion happening at the time. So we made like retail furniture, and our unique twist was we made it in China. And uh, I had worked in factories that had made similar products growing up. Just so happened that my hometown is sort of has a couple factories that builds retail uh, fixturing. So I knew about the industry and I was just trying to make a name for myself. I didn't have like pedigree or an education or anything. and just got lucky to kind of fall into the lap of this very entrepreneurial founder. And uh, so kind of cut my business teeth on going from, I think I was employee number, maybe call it 13 or 14. And we kind of hired up 20 people while I was there. And so I, and one of those people was Ian and Ian was always like uh, very entrepreneurial and very different. Um, and he was the first person I was pretty young, trying to be cool in the office, wore nice clothes, all that. And like, I kind of broke down and I really liked the guy. And so we just started hanging out on the weekends and stuff. Yeah, and he was into Mazda Miatas, I remember. 
Yeah, Ian is a complete car nerd. Now he has three bays in his backyard. He probably has like 13 cars on his property. Like he's always <laughs> it's like swapping engines and racing cars and he races in national series and stuff like that. So part of our motivation to grow a better business is so he can move up in series because it's a yeah. terrible business racing cars. <laughs> um, and so you guys did the podcast together for people that don't know. It was kind of Dan and Ian. There were a lot there were a lot of episodes though where he wasn't present and you just kind of soloed it. Yeah. I kind of got the vibe that um he was like the the low-key CEO and you were like the Dana White showman. <laughs> yeah, I mean at the time like the he was running this manufacturing company that we had. And you know, it, it ended up you know, I think at its, at its height, we were doing almost $4 million a year in sales. And, you know, we had an office in San Diego. He lived there. We had a bunch of employees. Meanwhile, I'm like, holy shit, have you guys ever heard of Bali? This place is incredible. And so I'm like writing about it and putting essays on the internet. And I'm still involved day to day in the business, but mostly the marketing side. So that a lot of our team, so marketing development was based in Manila. And, you know, it was just such a exciting time for digital nomadism that around 2012 timeframe that the podcast itself turned into a business. And so there were these years from 2012 to 2015 where we were basically like co-CEOs of two or presidents of two, of two separate businesses. And then in 2015, we sold the e-commerce business. Right. And I'll, I'll read a couple more, uh, uh, podcast titles for people. So 2011, why internet business owners should set up in Hong Kong, uh, how we sold a blog for five figures uh, that you sold to Chris Ducker. If I remember, it was like a Philippines VA business. Yeah, it was called outsource to the Philippines.com. Um, mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to see if anything else. Uh, but yeah, so when when did you guys take the leap to first work uh remotely i imagine in asia for for a significant amount of time when did you first get over there and what was the first destination the first destination for me was vietnam um and it was convenient for a couple of different reasons one is like we're diversifying some of our steel manufacturing down there two there was this like local dude on the ground who was very entrepreneurial named tom tron who was kind of a fixer like uh, all around like entrepreneurial guy um, who I really connected with and, and we became close friends and also, so my ex business partner and Ian, so my mentor and Ian needed development and marketing resources for the companies they were running. So the 35 person company, which I eventually quit that job mm-hmm. and then our new small little startup. So, and so, so you, what went I, to, you went to Vietnam with the job. No, I quit. No, I quit the job. And then I sold a consulting package back to my ex employer and to Ian. And I didn't take any cash from Ian. So the basic idea was like, when I quit, my boss was like, dude, you can't quit. Like, I'll keep paying you do go do whatever you want to do. And I was like, that's ridiculous. You can't keep paying me six figures. So I was like, how about like, I cut this deal, like pay me 45 grand a year. And I'll go to Vietnam and deploy 50 grand for you. I'll take the other half of my salary and build you something. So I did that for Vietnam. I did that in Vietnam for a couple months. And then the financial crisis hit. And 
Jim. And this is the 2008-2009 financial crisis. That's yeah, yeah, and it was like the world stopped. And Jim sent me this email that was basically like, we're in deep shit, dude. Like, you got to like, I can't, this, I got to cut this. Like, you can't go out there and just deploy this money. Like, we got to like tighten up and figure out what's going on. So I ended up coming back home. In the meantime, when I was in Asia, I had learned about the Philippines. And I was having some struggles with the Vietnamese language barrier at the time. And frankly, with like the level of their marketing and development skills. And I had meanwhile visited the Philippines and learned all about it. And I was like, oh, this is the jam. So I kind of like circled the wagons. And I remember going into a conference room with Ian and Jim. So my mentor and my business partner saying, guys, the Philippines is the future. I gave a little presentation and I was like, just pay me 50 grand a year. And like, I'm going to take you know, 50 grand from you, 50 grand from you. And here's what we're going to build. We're going to have like a whole back office in Manila. And that's eventually what I did. I got back on a plane sort of like the next year, early in the next year, flew to Manila and with Tom and we set up, we kind of like set up a little fun party house in, in the islands of the Philippines. In and Davao, meanwhile, right? like, uh, this, at this time it was in a place called Dumaguete. Okay. And then we, we built a back office with, at the time, I believe we had, we have five employees um, and they were delivering marketing and development services back to my company and, and my ex-employer. And so was, what motivated you to, to want to be the like entrepreneurial guy and the guy to go abroad? Did you just have that intrinsic desire for adventure or like, it must've been a lot of a combination of factors. It was, I mean, it's kind of like this basic yearning for freedom. One of the ways I kind of think about it in retrospect is like a hack for wealth. So like as my salary got larger in California, you know, and I started to make six figures and I started to like look at my life and my bank account and stuff and like kind of play it forward five years. I was like, basically, I'm always going to be broke. And I just couldn't see my way out of like joining this wealth class. And then all of a sudden you kind of like move to Asia and you're making 50 grand a year. Plus I'm getting other sources of income now going and it's like, huh? Like I'm already rich here. Uh, I already own my time. I can go wherever I want. Like I am living this like fabulously ostentatious lifestyle that I dreamed of in California that was completely unavailable to me. And so I don't know if I would have articulated it to myself quite that way at the time. I was kind of like more, I want to go on the adventure of a lifetime I don't really care if it fucks up my career at this point. I'm just going to do it because I don't know. I really don't know. And what was the main way that you guys were like communicating back with California? So when you're in the Philippines, when you're in Vietnam, how were you actually communicating with Ian this, and this Jim is, and everyone in California? Because there was no Skype. There's no Zoom. I, this is like, a great you're question. Just, you were just doing email, basically. It's a great fucking question. I love this question because it points to a hidden factor that I believe had an enormous impact on digital nomadism and, you know, remote work in the early days, which is Skype out. So that product did exist. I believe so. I, I can go check. I believe they launched in 2008 or 2009. And so I would call Ian every day uh, when I woke up and that was for him in Pacific time. That was basically right after he got out of the office. And then I would call my other business partner, Jim, at once a week. And so before Skype out, 
you know, to call people who were expecting to get, you know, on their handset um, or their landline, um, it would have been prohibitively expensive. And so I think that when I, I used to do these podcasts where I was like, here's really like, here's like the last 25 people I met that, that are actually doing this and they're not full of shit. And almost all of them depended on the phone because that's like this enormous lever. If you like compare businesses, it's really hard to, you know, grow internet monies, you know, build a website that just kind of like dumps cash into your bank accounts in particular in this time frame. So now all of a sudden you have an opportunity to, you know, relocate to Asia or to Latin America and you get five clients that pay you 2000 bucks a month and you manage those relationships via Skype out. So that was absolutely a game changer and the whole community basically depended on it. And I had a related question that uh, I wanted to ask, which is, so when you listen to some of these episodes, it's like you and Ian huddled in a pretty loud cafe with the, <laughs> with like the plates, plates doing plate noises. Yeah. And you're like, yo, we're in the only Starbucks in Bali. And we're, and, um, you know, the six signs that you're an entrepreneur, you know what I mean? And, and I'm just like, and my thought right now is like, why did you have to record in the Starbucks? Did you need internet to record or like, you know what I mean? That's a great question. I don't know. Like partially is like, why don't we do it in our hotel rooms? It could have been the fact that we had this shitty blue Yeti mic that needs a really good room to sound good. Like this idea that now we have these dynamic microphones that plug into USB, that technology didn't exist then. So the only company that had like done the USB thing was blue and they had this shit condenser mic. And so I was always managing that thing, trying to find a space where we would sound half decent. So that might be part of it. Um, at the time, you know, we're broke or we're not taking any salaries. We're putting everything back in the company. So maybe we're staying in these kinds of like classic Asian hotel rooms that are echo chambers, you know, where they have mm -hmm. like uh, that kind of tile floors. Um, that could have been it. I really don't know. I don't know why we weren't just sitting in a hotel room. Well, you definitely got out of the house. We definitely gave some like local flavor on the pod. There's plenty of like roosters crowing and, <laughs> you know, like motorcycles going by and all kinds of, uh, yeah, like a sound engineer's nightmare. Basically the podcast was for many years. Um, and give us like a, just a timeline of the locations that you, you were in. So you started in Vietnam, you went to Philippines, you're base in Philippines a long time. I kind of get the sense that you kept the Philippines base, but hopped around Southeast Asia while keeping the Philippines base. You're in the, you're in Asia for a long time. I, I don't want to yeah. guess up until like, I don't know, 2016 maybe. Uh, yeah. And then you, and then you went back to like Austin, Barcelona, Barcelona. Mm -hmm. So you just give us like a real, real quick timeline of the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, what I found was like, Philippines was really relevant for business, but I find the Philippines to be a very, very hard place to live. You know, I just, a lot of times I just didn't like it. I like visiting there, but you know, I, I just, sometimes I just throw my hands up in the air in that country. And I just feel like it's the word that comes to my mind. This is like mildly insulting. And I want to say this. I love the Philippines. I love Filipinos. I have tons of, but it's sort of a country full of just derp, you know, the term like just 
it just keeps kicking itself in the foot you know, or in, in the face or whatever. And it's just, it just bugs me. And so every once in a while, I was like, I got to get the hell out of here. And so I would start flying to Bali because I had heard from somebody that Bali is the jam. And I, you show up to Bali and it's like all this like refinement and art and culture. And it's like the opposite of the Philippines, but with a similar kind of landscape and, and costs. And so I ended up spending a great deal of time in Bali. And then essentially what I would do is I'd visit friends and interesting people. So there was a whole bunch of interesting people living in Saigon. So I started going there a lot. And then I ended up just staying in a hotel there or uh, sorry, a, a really nice service department. That was like one of my first big lifestyle upgrades. I remember when I got a service department in district one of Ho Chi Minh city and my rent was 1200 bucks a month. And I, you, you can remember like in your life when you like the way my business partner says is, do you remember when a hundred dollars became $10? Um, there's like certain like shelves of like spending and lifestyle expense. And that was a big deal for me because I was really living this like digital nomad, like pop around to like budget spots. And then sometime in like the 2012 timeframe, I was like, you know what? I'm going to like get this like luxury apartment. It's 1200 bucks a month. And then in Bali, I, I lived in a room in a really nice villa. And yeah, I would basically just be like, do these regional things where I'd like go somewhere for two weeks or there wasn't like really a three week period where I would just be in one place. I was really just first go to Bali. What year? If I had to guess, I'd say 2011. I'm not sure though. And what was the scene like back then? Can you paint a picture? Were there other digital nomads? Was it just a bunch of sunburnt Australians or... You know, what was the, what was the, what was the scene? Bali was interesting because there was this super high end international wealth scene there. That's like, you know, there's these ancient kind of currents of flows and like, there's a lot of like, say for example, like wealthy New York finance people who are into art collecting, who have a villa in Bali. And I think then that attracts this like international kind of like art, like music party kind of country club scene. And so although there there was a lot less digital nomads there, we got to hang around in like these amazing spaces, these amazing parties. Um, and, And I'd say like it was much more lifestyle or kind of like cashing in your wealth check oriented in Bali at the time. And then there's sort of like that kind of lifestyle scene where it's like, you know, I'm a photographer or I'm a yoga instructor or teach yoga online, stuff like that. Um, but it's always sort of been kind of a stop off in the scene. And I remember asking a friend in 2012, I was in, I think visiting Chiang Mai for the first time. This might've been 2013 ish timeframe. And I was like, Hey, why doesn't everybody just live in Bali? Like it's got everything, you know, Thailand has. And she was like, the reason is a thousand bucks a month. Is that Bali was at the time what basically cost a thousand dollars more a month to live in or whatever, something like that. And that mm-hmm. was basically meaningful. I mean, that's if we're being honest, that's why everybody's there is because it's cheap. You know, the moment you're making bank, uh, you don't have to really identify with that community in the same way anymore. Makes sense. So 2013 Chiang Mai for the first time. Hmm. That was another spot that you guys helped put on the map. Yeah. And a lot of this stuff was actually like put on the map in our forum by influential members. So there was this 
very influential thread that went up in like 2011, 12 timeframe that was called Saigon on fire. And it must've been, and, and since that time, there's been a lot of these threads that become like a, like kind of a status symbol or a trend in the community to try to like pump your spot. And, <laughs> and like at the time, I mean, there must've been like 45 of us in town and we were just like long form hanging all the time, going on vacations together and just building. We would like sit in cafes, like, you know, all day long together, go for walks and go to work out. And, um, that was really cool. Um, so that was put on the map by John Myers and then who now I uh, was the co-founder of power trade. And then Travis Jamison, who's the founder of, uh, smash.vc and, uh, smash digital did a Chiang Mai thread. And I remember the first year we all went to Chiang Mai and I'm talking about dynamite circle members. This is 2012 that the one like kind of like international standard condo building like was completely full. Like everybody that had lived there was pissed because we just took every available space in the city. Essentially at the time Chiang Mai didn't super resonate with me. Um, but I ended up, uh, living there, um, and actually getting a Thai elite visa many years in the future when I got into cycling and golf and, uh, happens to be just a wonderful city for those two sports. Did you ever, did you ever meet Johnny FD like early on in Chiang Mai or anything? I have met him on like three or four occasions. He's come to DC events and he's hosted small gatherings in Chiang Mai that I've gone to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like a super passionate dude. I, that's, I mean, we never hung out that much, but I remember like when he gets interested in a topic, he can kind of just riff on it, uh, mm -hmm. which is, which is really cool. And how long did you base up in Philippines to? When did Philippines kind of dissolve? I mean, at one point I, I was dating someone from the Philippines for over three years. So we had set up an apartment there and I had a lot of good friends there. So I would still spend a ton of time there, but we would like still pop over to Bali and stuff. So Philippines was always sort of where like I had these like long form relationships, right? I had like my staff there. I had a long-term relationship there and I had like a, a new business mentor and like some old friends that, uh, I would, you know, go live at their houses and stuff like that. So I just feel like Philippines was always sort of in the background for business reasons. And I had like some kind of life cement there, but then I would go to these other locations for like their amenities and the lifestyle and to hang out with people. And you would just maintain an apartment in the Philippines and just like, leave it, leave it unoccupied for like weeks at a time. No, sometimes I, I did have that in the later years. I just had a full-time place because I was, I was living in Davao at the time. Sorry if this is getting in the weeds, but uh, uh, in Davao, there wasn't a great infrastructure for service departments like there is in Manila. And so I had to set up a place, um, which was a total pain in the butt, you know, but uh, I ended up like Airbnb in it and it worked out okay. But uh, yeah, that's basically what I did. I kept a kind of a pad in the Philippines and then it's a lot easier when you're in other places to have a, like service departments that you prefer and to go there. Yeah, it makes sense. They did, they did have like those furnished departments early on, like in Asia way before they had them in Europe or Latin America. Absolutely. And they were really good. You know, like I've lived in many apartments that were decorated better than I had decorated my apartment. So like I suck at putting together an apartment. So I like outsourcing that. I prefer to do that indefinitely if I could. Um, but you know, depending on where you live, like right now I'm living in a service department in Barcelona that is 
you know, maybe the nicest apartment I've ever stayed in. So, I mean, it's like, I, I, I think that that apartments as a service is an awesome model and I hope it continues to expand. Mm-hmm. And when did, uh, when did Ian like come out to Asia full time and join you? So Ian never did. And partially because he's a race car driver. <laughs> I say that like with a straight face, like he's always been really involved in the racing community. And I think that's hard. That's his primary hobby. And it's hard to travel with that. So what he'd do is he'd come out and just hang out with me like for months at a time or one year in Saigon. Like he lived there for four months, I believe. So he has a lot of experience living abroad. Um, he, does, he would spend yeah. the summers here in Barcelona with me when I moved here in 2016. Um, but yeah, he's always just sort of had a home base in America. Got it. And, you know, one one other thing that was cool about the Tropical MBA podcast is you guys kept it very business focused. Um, you guys, even though you're in the Philippines, which is known as kind of like a, a nightlife spot, a pretty good dating spot, you never really even like coyly mentioned it all that much, like maybe a little bit like wink, wink, nod, nod, but you never mm-hmm. really talked about the dating stuff. Yeah. Um, by design, like I think at the time I was very interested in those topics and would in private conversation talk extensively about you know, dating and, and relationships and stuff like that. I just felt like it's one of those things. If you're going to do on a podcast, you go a hundred percent or not. And I wasn't an expert at it. I wasn't good at it. And I feel like it really gets in the way of the business stuff, especially since, you know, 30% of our audience are women. So I don't think they're particularly interested in hearing like my perspective on my personal life. And so mm-hmm. I didn't want that to get in the way of, and you know what? I think that's sort of a theme for me. Like I love to have fun. <laughs> Does it get that on wax tell. right now? I, like, I love to have fun, but, and I hang around people that love to have fun. And like, we run a basically an events community where like, even tonight, like I'm going to a party with a bunch of DC members here in Barcelona. Um, I think one of the things that's always like bothered me about the digital nomad community and is is basically like people they get that first taste of freedom and then they like waste waste all their time like hanging out on waterfalls with a bunch of other jokers you know it's like i really think like you should Mm. leverage the opportunity to build wealth and to make sure you never have to go home or you never have to go back to wage slavery that's sort of the idea um for me that's always been really important to me as someone who never had any money you know, and so that, that this is something that I wanted to set us apart is like, we're, yeah, sure. It's like you get to live like a baller in, in certain low cost countries, but that's not really the point. The point is to own your time and to build assets and then you can, you know, be a baller for the rest of your life. And that was kind of, I, I hope the theme of the show. I, I can tell you have some strong thoughts about, uh, the, the waterfall everyday people, <laughs> um, and I'm, uh, I do. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely guilty of that. You know, I'll be like, Oh, I have four hours till my next call. I think I can make it to the waterfall and back. Let's do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So tell me a well, little bit about a, how you think about it. You have a profitable skill set, my man. You know, that's completely different situation. You're set up, you're made man. A lot of these people that I was somewhat critical of, and it's weird because like, who knows what they're what they really want. Maybe they just want an adventure. They want to be that backpacker for one year out of their lives. And then 
they go back. But I see a lot of moaning and whining by people who are essentially perpetually broke in the community, um, in the digital nomad community, that is. Um, it's, it's also a bit self-selecting, right? Like once you get invested in a skill set or a business, typically you don't primarily identify as a nomad anymore, right? You move on to like whatever it is you're doing that you're truly invested in. The nomads is very like kind of basic level um, identification. So yeah, I think that, uh, you know, you, you see it in these low cost uh, situations where people just basically squander the opportunity or they, they don't take their own upskilling seriously. And it can be hard when you're, when there's like a bunch of jokers in your location. So we've all had that kind of expat experience where you can be like a fish out of water. Like there's a bunch of people like just around you that are literally retired, like broken, retired. And then you're sitting there with like the rest of your life in front of you. And so sometimes, or you can be in a situation where there's like a bunch of young people that are essentially just partying. And, and I think it can be tough to like maybe get your bearings in that situation. Like that is often represented on the web as having made it like making it is like living in a Thai Island and like going to, you know, spiritual retreat treats or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. and that's not, you know, you can walk up to the person who like owns the retreat center and say, what's your bottom line this year? And that'll give you the whole story, you know? Mm -hmm. you, you know, we actually, uh, uh, had a little bit of a conversation on, on Twitter about a month ago. Um, where we were talking about that, where there's sort of this, there's this sort of middle ground for digital nomads where you're, you're, you're living good in a low cast, low cost locale, uh, but you're kind of too broke to go back to the States. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a phenomenon. It's a real phenomenon that you, uh, um, it's interesting. Like I, I see there's like, there's all these different ways people leverage digital nomadism. One, like a very successful way I've seen is that people stair step their way back to the first world. And so they move to low cost in order to stack cash, to invest their time into building assets. And then when they re-enter back to like, say a mid-range place like Europe or Mexico, and now I'm going to go back to New York or California or whatever, now you're in the wealth class because you were able to free up space for you to build assets essentially. But then there's the other way, which is like, you can show up in Vietnam circa 2012 and you can live in a really big, nice apartment and you can basically say, well, like 3000 bucks a month is all I need. And so then you never consider like that you might want to spend a summer in Europe some year, or you might need to go back to spend some time with family who are aging or whatever. And so I think that phenomenon happens quite a bit as well. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I wouldn't call it a trap, but I think that's the circumstance for a lot of people that are kind of on their journey where if you're making even 2K right now in 2022, if you're making 2K a month US, you can live in most of the world pretty well. Like you could live in any Latin American country. You could live in pretty much any Asian country on 2K. But you go back to the States and that's that a good is, tweet, by the way. That is pretty not that is not gonna cut it at all. Even 4K is not gonna cut it. And uh -huh. if you had if you had if you went from 2K to if you're you know on the journey, you go to from 2K to 4K in Mexico or or Barcelona or Bali, 
like you're like sick, like lifestyle upgrade a little bit. Yeah. But it it almost won't make a difference because you already hit you already hit a good baseline with fifteen hundred or two k. But even on that four k, you can't really move back to California. Um, you're you're definitely priced out of certain jurisdictions, and so you kind of have to, you know, I don't know. You have to tell these digital nomads like, this is cool for now, but you should get to a point where you know, the whole idea is that you can live anywhere, but you're, you're still, you're still too broke to live anywhere. 100%. And, uh, you know, enter this amazing trend of remote work. So if you happen to be lucky enough to be a North American right now, if you can skill up in tech and then arbitrage your location and stack that cash. So like during your prime earning years, you're actually building up a big nest egg that you can use to fund your retirement, that you can use to start side cash flows, make good investments, et cetera. It's an all-time opportunity right now because the arbitrage is enormous and the risk of that strategy is low. One of the things, you know, sitting here 15 years later is the, the risk of trying to spend your best years building affiliate sites in Asia is relatively high. Like that might not work out for you and you might end up 40, 45, 50 and basically still be month to month. And so you really don't want to find yourself in that situation. Now, being here in Europe this summer, it's incredible. I'm seeing all these people that they do marketing operations, HR, they do development for major tech companies in the US and they're hanging out here in Barcelona, a world-class city where you can live for way less than half of the price you can live in America. And I think that that is genius. Um, it's it's a little bit unclear to me whether I would be a business owner right now if that opportunity had existed for me. Right. It's almost like we've undergone a shift where in 2012, 90, 95% of the uh, digital nomad crowd, they were entrepreneurs. Where we've gone completely the other way, where probably 90% now are, and if not now, certainly in the next 10 years, 90, 95% are going to be remote workers and not entrepreneurs. 100%. And it actually, it's something I was reflecting on a podcast episode a few days ago where, you know, Peter Levels came onto the scene with Nomads List around 2014. Mm-hmm. And what was so interesting about his audience is that they weren't entrepreneurs. Like I remember uh, someone in our group like going to a meetup um, of like an early crew and they were like, oh yeah, like they're all developers for San Francisco companies. And so it was like culturally, it was a very different group of people. And I think what's interesting about that crowd is like their stories are so much more relevant and interesting to like society in general. Whereas when you look at like a group like the Dynamite Circle, like first off, entrepreneurs don't really want to tell their stories because they're paranoid that someone's going to take their business. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and so these like, uh, you know, it's, it's this more secretive, elusive because people don't want to say like, Oh, I make, you know, $25,000 a month selling something that you could maybe spin up in six months. And, or, uh, and so you're right to say that, um, that's definitely something I've noticed is like you, you had to be an entrepreneur to be out there. And I think that that was, what was so magical about that time in retrospect and why so many of us still are friends and stick together. Cause it was very like eat what you kill. Yeah. It was a little bit like, you know, 
Paris in the twenties kind of vibe, like sitting around this table in some random city on the other side of the world and you're living pretty well. It's like, wow, this is interesting. You know, like we have something to talk about for sure. What do you think of Nomad List and Peter Levels and the impact that that has had on the digital nomad community? Uh, I'm not the hugest expert on the digital nomad community, but I've definitely been keeping a lot of tabs on it for almost a decade now. And I feel like the first wave to me was kind of four hour work week and then Tropical MBA and, uh, and Johnny FD. And then the next wave was basically Peter Levels and Nomad List. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I, I really would hesitate to say that in the case of Tropical MBA and Johnny FD, that we really speak for even just a small percentage of what that first wave actually was. And there were waves before. I think that's worth mentioning too. There were. Yeah, I know there were. Yeah. Fair enough. And with 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 Peter Levels, I think it's his stuff is brilliant. You know, um, I just think the world needed that rallying cry of like, Hey, you're a developer, you're, uh, uh, you're building technologies on the web. You ought to consider taking it global. And I think that, uh, I've never personally met him. I'd love to someday. I listened to a couple of his podcasts and he just seems like he's got this awesome attitude about business. He reminds me a lot of, uh, you know, one of the members of our community, Derek Sivers, uh, like this kind of like, I'm just going to do it my way. And like, I don't need to, you know, turn it into some corporate operation. And I'm, I think that's very inspiring personally. Yeah. He is very Derek Sivers like. Yeah. Derek's the real deal. And, uh, I do think there's something magical about kind of trusting your nose and not letting your company or your message getting watered down by experts who start to kind of circle you as you get bigger. And I think that Derek did a very good job of that. It seems like Peter's done a very good job of that too, which is like, you don't need to listen to the experts. You can follow your nose and your instincts and um, build something unique in the world. Yeah, I think they both had a a very good human touch with their products. So like Derek Sivers, he would sell CDs online. And when you got the CD in the mail, it would have like a little letter with it. And it would say like, hey, like, thanks so much. This is Derek or like whatever it was. (laughs) And then... I look at Peter Level's products and he just literally writes into the HTML template like asterisks, like, hey, sorry, we have to charge you here. The reason is because blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And so it's very uh, it's very human and uh, it builds trust. Yeah, very cool stuff. So um, I I was hoping actually as an elder statesman, maybe you could give us a brief uh, outline of the history of the digital nomad movement. I know that's kind of a, a tall task, but in your view, um, where did it start and what were sort of like the important, uh, waves or progressions over time? Um, <clears throat> I have actually done like an hour long podcast about this exact topic with a really well-researched article. Um, and mm, I remember this, this. there's yeah, a guy who wrote a book. Right. So, uh, <laughs> if you go to nomadicnotes.com, uh, and search this on James Clark's website. Um, James is the real deal and one of the most sustained long-term travelers I've ever personally met. He's a really good hang if you can manage to get a coffee with him. And he wrote this article that I we had been talking about for years called The History of Digital Nomadism. And it's when you dig into it, it's a little bit more uh, complex. You know, 
one of the things I was thinking about when we were talking about like, you know, Peter levels and like this, like there's a lot of, you know, I've ended up kind of ending up in like this, you know, hyper globalized small business entrepreneurial community. So I'm not even sure that I hang out with digital nomads or people that, you know, identify as that. So that's kind of interesting as well. So there are all these like different kind of like distinctions and subgroups and stuff like that. Um, like for example, like in this co-working space, like there's a lot of people from different countries, but I, I'm pretty sure they they work for tech companies, you know. So that's like a very different cultural crowd uh, in my book. I think one of the things that I noticed, like, so I can just kind of give some personal um, flesh on the bone here. Like, there was this early group of like kind of people who figured out affiliate marketing, some people who figured out pornography, like these kind of very early canary in the coal mine sort of 2004 uh, online businesses, some of which served as examples for Tim in the four hour work week. Um, That was, there was a little scene there and there was like little tendrils of people out and they kind of rolled their eyes when the Skype crowd came in. So I was the Skype crowd that was dependent on phone calls to run. A lot of it was digital agencies, essentially service companies, freelancers. Um, If you run a company like that and you have cheap international calling, it makes sense to diversify and get your staff members abroad. So that was essentially, I think, the first meaningful wave, um, the first wave where you could go places. We started hosting conferences that a hundred people would attend and all of them would be founders. A lot of it, e-commerce software or agencies. I think one of the mischaracterizations I did mention, I did mention affiliate and I did mention pornography and I know some stories of those people. I didn't really hang out with them, but the first wave of nomads that I was a part of, like if we were to take an inventory of all the business models and things that they were doing, it was 95% legitimate. Like the, here's a person who sells content packages on the web. Here's a person who uh, has an SEO service that focuses on link building. Here's a person that uh, sells on Amazon. Here, it, 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 I think often on the web, people say it was just a bunch of like scam artists or people selling courses to each other. Even like um, people just casually say like travel bloggers will say, yeah, it was just a bunch of people selling courses online. Like I just never met those people. So I think that's kind of like a disconnect in terms of like, if you just read the media versus if you actually sit in the room of a hundred people who are like making it work, it's like, it's, it's very different. The reality is very different from how people speak about it. Yeah. So it's almost like as, certain business models gain popularity, the people in that sub niche, the people working with that business model all kind of got free at the same time. That's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. And then there was a big misunderstanding on the web about what getting free meant because like most business models, and this is changing with social media and stuff. Remember like social media was a much different game back then. Like, the idea that you could start a business like uploading content to the web in like WordPress was like still this massive business idea on everybody's minds because there weren't these platforms where people are like, you know, uploading kind of crowdsourced content about travel, for example. Um, 
and in other words, like most, another to get back to my point, I think most business models don't like super succeed from you, like telling the story of it. And so instead you'd have like a bunch of bloggers who wrote about travel or digital nomadism that would essentially say things like, yeah, this was the era of like people selling courses, but actually what they were talking about is like themselves. If that makes sense, like they knew all the other bloggers, so they would always be talking about blogging. Whereas I think one thing that was unique about the TMBA audience is like we would host these events and you just didn't see any of that. Like there was never any travel, uh, travel bloggers couldn't afford to come to our events. You know what I mean? Like they, there was never that we just didn't have that crowd. These were like business owners, essentially. I, I definitely had the FOMO and I wanted to start a business basically just so I could join Dynamite Circle. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing crowd of people. Like it's, they're very unique, um, ambitious and adventurous founders. Um, this is a cool group. So dynamite circle or the DC, uh, has been around for quite a while now. Uh, maybe tell people a little bit about it and how it's evolved over time. And then maybe also, uh, we'll, we'll stop there. So yeah, what, what, what's it about and how, how has it changed over time? Yeah, you're good at this, by the way. Uh, <laughs> you're better at this than 40 episodes. Uh, excellent questions. So, yeah, the, the um, I mean, I think the thing about DC is it's been remarkably consistent. We started it in 2011. And essentially, um, we, would, we were trying to go to like networking events to meet other entrepreneurs. And it was like kind of, I guess, what we've been gesturing at in this episode. There's so many different kinds of entrepreneurship and business ownership and digital nomadism that like I just wasn't meeting anybody. And so we started saying like, look, we like run a freaking cat furniture business on the web. We got like employees all around the world. We're trying to figure out how to do this. And we go to these business meetups and it's a bunch of real estate jokers or local businesses or we just can't find people that like are on this like micro multinational vibe or whatever for lack of mm -hmm. a better term. Mm -hmm. And, um, people started meeting up and it was magic. Like it, we would meet up in these kind of like hard to get to locations, like on resorts and sort of strange islands. And I remember the first meetup, there was 18 people there and we would just and go around. Where, where was the first, was it BKK the first, or the first meetup was in the Philippines on an Island called Manduro. And there was 18 founders there. Some weren't founders, actually, but eight, 18 people that managed to get there. And we went, went around the circle and everybody sort of like told their story. And it was like, holy shit, that makes total sense to me. We just got each other in a way that was a magical feeling. And it was, I guess, a year later that we had our first uh, event in Bangkok at a, at a nice hotel. We had a kind of this new concept where... Hey, let you know. Let's stay in like a five star hotel and like just kind of have this great weekend together. And I remember Derek Sivers spoke at that one. You know, Mark Manson was there. Like, there's all these kind of like people that we all are household names now that kind of were were feeling this thing out at that time, like trying to figure out what this new thing that was all in our minds was. And it's it's more or less stayed the same to this day. Um, you know, we have events every month uh, all around the world. And we have a couple big ones every year in Mexico and Bangkok. And we have a forum with 1200 people chatting about everything from, you know, productivity to where they're spending the summer to, you know, how to get their PayPal account reinstalled after getting locked out of it. 
<laughs> and and uh, the Mexico only came much later on. It was it was all Asia events in this in the beginning, right? Um, no, I mean, well, it just depends in terms of like our pr- premier events that like Ian and I like put on with our staff. yeah the premier events where yeah, you know so, you had stickers and and all that. That's right. So we've done uh, we've done Bangkok's our biggest one. We did a lot of Europe events. And we've done a lot of America events. And then recently we moved that down to Mexico because um, that's really what our people want. You know, even like though a lot of our members like are, say, based full time in America, they very much like want to fly to Bangkok to and, and like spend like four weeks on the road. You know, they, they want that adventure uh, and they want the value that these companies provide the luxury. You know, you can't get that kind of luxury in America at any kind of meaningful price point. And even you know, I would argue at, at like the high ends and, you know, places like Mexico and um, uh, Thailand, even like culturally, it's just hard to like approximate the value in the U.S. Were, so. were all the Europe ones in Barcelona it was like D.C. BCN or did you do other spots? We had a Berlin. We had a Berlin one. Um, and then we have a we have a D.C. X series that are member hosted events and they range from anywhere from. 10 people to 150 people members and a little tip uh, of the hat to TEDx. Yeah. I mean, yeah, basically that's, we were just like, how do we like distinguish it? And so we've had, you know, many of those all over Europe. We have one in Utrecht coming up. We have often have them in Prague, but they're really global. We've had them in Taiwan. We had a recent, uh, very large one in London. So like different community, different communities, uh, around the world, they want to promote their city to other members. So they do that via essays in the forum like there was this one essay written by freddie lansky who was a guest on your show um yep. i think he wrote like a five thousand word post where he's like y'all need to come to mexico city and a, a lot of us did so that so that's one method and then the other method is to host an event and so like we support it we sell tickets we make sure you know the organization goes down and then you can host an event and you're in the city you love that's so funny that you know uh, Freddie Lansky did a podcast with us. That was only episode four or five, so you've done your research. Yep. Yeah. And just so people know, like these DC events were not just any other boring conference. These were like legendary events, and <laughs> all the other like anyone who was anyone in like niche websites and internet entrepreneurship, like in the in the 2010s time frame. They were like all there and you would listen to other people's podcasts and they would name drop DC BKK and they'd be name dropping you guys all the time. Like, oh, I'm in the dynamite circle, blah, blah, blah. Like it was a <laughs> it was a it was a who's who. And I bet all those people are super ballers now. It's 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 wild. It's wild to see like these people you met in the early days and you're like, oh, that dude's so crazy. He does this weird thing, you know, and that now they're like industry leaders it's wild if you want to read about the early days there's this uh mark manson article called the dark side of digital nomadism okay and like he has this uh the intro vignette is a portrait of DC, the first dcbkk um i, so I think i might have read that yeah yeah and so at the time were there other uh internet communities similar to dc or were you guys like the only the only thing in town? I'm pretty sure we were the only show in town. Um, again, like, like 
there were these kind of adjacent things that started popping up years later, like things like Nomad Cruise and st- stuff like that. But yeah. it just there wasn't a lot of crossover. Like I think the DC's always been about legitness, you know. And that's sometimes I do bristle about like the critiques of that wave because you know the reality is is we're not in like large numbers. There wasn't a large numbers of us, so. The media and bloggers, all they don't care about us, you know, but so I have a chance to tell my story. Like these people were in the room because they were legit entrepreneurs. That was yeah, what was interesting. Yeah, there was like revenue and, minimums and stuff. 100%. Yeah. And that's what we talked about. Like we don't put people on stage to talk about some bullshit mindset stuff. Like, don't <laughs> care. Just, just freaking don't care. Like tell me, freaking tell me what you did. Tell me what, you, you know, show me the P and L. That's what I, I want to see how you did this really hard thing because I can go everywhere else, to, you know, solve a problem of like where I should travel or how to meet people on the road or like, these are very trivial problems, you know? And I, so I think that the DC has always been organized around what we see as the, the hard things, which is, well, how do you make a profitable lifestyle business? That's, that's a complicated thing. And so we kind of set ourselves apart by focusing on business. Yeah. I like that. The meat and potatoes. And, and the lifestyle stuff is is comes easy, right? Because obviously, these are incredibly interesting people to spend time with and to have fun with. So that stuff comes easy, right? And you guys all would like it. It was like open bar, or you guys would all hit the bar after the event. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's traditionally a very good party. I mean, and part of what I think you know is so fun about the DCBKK event is the parties. You know, we we spend a great deal of time pulling together rooftop venues and. Uh, you're just giving our members sort of a five-star experience and something that they'll remember all year. And it's crazy, you know, the, the way the scene's changing is now we have like childcare at these hotels, like people bring their families. This is like an opportunity for them to do a big family vacation mm-hmm. and to like show their partner why they're so obsessed about this. Like, you know, cause we'll all come home and say, Oh, you know, you should, you should see what Mary's doing. Like she, Oh my gosh, she's making this much money doing this. And like your partner is sort of like, I don't know who this person is, you know? And so like, I think there's a lot more, you know, as the community gets older, um, you know, you're seeing the young people come in and then the, some of the older folks turn it into a family thing. In fact, this year, uh, one of our oldest members said, uh, basically his son's going to come to the event and he bought a ticket with his own money. So, uh, he's like, "Hey, can a thirteen-year-old come?" And I was like, "Hell yeah, we gotta, we gotta foster the next generation." Damn, it's like LeBron's kid entering the NBA. Totally, totally. <laughs> I was really proud about that one. Uh, pretty cool. And uh, so these days, are there more communities that similar to DC that that you respect? Like, if someone's yeah. listening to this and they're an internet entrepreneur now, like, what options do they have? Yeah. So. Um, the, the ones that are like parallel to DC, the, the first one that jumps into mind is e-commerce fuel. It's an excellent community and it's, it's very similar to the DC. In fact, I, th- I think Andrew modeled a lot of the early days of his community off of his experience in the DC. Um, and it's really focused on like seven figure plus e-commerce sellers. I think that's an excellent one. And, and I think like in terms of like forums and like ongoing stuff globally, um, it's harder to find that stuff. A lot of it's based around like events or coaching. So like things like capital camp, like Brent Bashore's community or, 
you can join things like YPO, the more classic stuff, um, entrepreneurs organization, EO, I think is another mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Um, right. That would be in like Silicon Valley. That'd be like a traditional one. Yeah. Uh, they have like much higher revenue requirements than the DC. Um, we're trying to capture like a lot of people who are like an agency owner that makes that their top line is like three hundred fifty, four hundred thousand dollars a year. Like a lot of our members fit that profile, and they're, you know, perfectly happy at that level. And they're also like really interesting entrepreneurs. And often, the entrepreneurs that are in more early phases, they have a lot of interesting crossover for the seven and eight figure owners, because their focuses are completely different. So, typically, uh, in the early days of a business, you're focused one hundred percent on on uh, marketing essentially so so getting customers and there's always a new and interesting way to do that and typically it's the early stage people who are more tapped into those techniques like i remember one year everybody's going crazy about like messenger outreach and stuff and i can implement this right away or whatever whereas the seven and eight figure owners are much more interested in things like process and hr and and stuff like that so more organizational theories so i think that That's one thing that's unique about the DC is that what ties us together is sort of like a mindset style, a way of thinking, not necessarily the the type of organization. And I think that's pretty unique about the DC. So we're evenly split 25% down from software, e-commerce, agency, and then kind of other. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, I have, a, I have a couple more kind of themes or topics I want to go over with you and then we'll kind of wrap it up and talk about, uh, dynamite jobs. Sure. Um, hopefully this topic will be interesting to you. I, I can tell by what you've told me in this conversation and, and also some of your other writings that you are interested in, um, in, in sort of like the different levels of the economy and, and basically like, and basically in the elite, like you're interested in the elite and moving on from just being like a niche website guy to being like a real like power player, or you're just interested in the flows of humans and capital around the globe. How did you get interested in that? I don't exactly know, but it's something very basic of growing up and never having money. And correlating that to feeling constrained and never having freedom. Of course, I had a great deal in retrospect, but it felt like I was very, very constrained because I had a lack of funds. And I really saw, you know, having a high salary as a way to drop the shackles and and like sort of have freedom in the world. And when I didn't experience that, I started to get pretty aggressive about looking for narratives that would provide that. And one of the things, you know, I figured out pretty early on is, you know, in the entrepreneurial world is it's pretty easy to build a business that is just an income. And so then I said, well, that's, you know, not quite good enough. I want to push to figure out who are the people that are building generational wealth um, and that are ascending to a new class. I think that's Something I've been thinking about a lot lately is it's pretty magical, especially in America, the kind of class flexibility we have. Of course, we have tons of problems, but that's Mm -hmm. very unique about America and the world. And I come from a group of a cohort of friends and entrepreneurs, many of whom have ascended um, into the incredibly wealthy. And I think running a business is really hard. 
And so you might as well put yourself on a pathway where you have, you know, the opportunity for asymmetric returns. And so I think that that's like a puzzle that I just find is very interesting. <laughs> you know, um, uh, back on the early tropical NBA podcast episodes, you guys had a soundbite and it was, it was, uh, it was Drucker or it was one of the Australian guys and he would say business. And, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and, and so <laughs> business <laughs> and, um, and I, I almost want to create a soundbite, uh, with you saying generational wealth. <laughs> that's a sexy term is it i don't even know what it means <laughs> i've heard you say it a lot man a lot of different times so how did you get interested in generational wealth and how, like um why okay, is that well, so why is that so important to you as an american where you know every generation kind of should just you know pick themselves up by the bootstraps i th i just think that um having money is uh it makes life more fun, <laughs> just straight up. I mean, it's fun to have resources to build amazing enterprises, to like do things, to like facilitate getting together with interesting people and forging amazing experiences, you know? Like, I just think about like, like this summer here in Barcelona, like all the people I'm spending like so much time with, like I, we have like a chef, we have like, when we wanna go like wine tasting, we like have a private, whole setup it's like all planned for us like i remember and i compare that to like when i was 2012 digital nomad like how much time i spent like just doing the basics and mm -hmm. so combine that so like there's a general belief that like you know there's diminishing returns to more money but at a certain you know you want to have a high income and you want to have assets that are worth a lot so that you have flexibility so that's one thing and then the other thing is like, I really feel that we made a mistake selling our e-commerce business in 2015 because I didn't understand something important about money, which is that the returns of it aren't, don't behave linearly. If you have $0 and you get $20,000, it is a life changing experience. I remember when I got my first $20,000, it changed my life. But if I give you another $20,000 and you have 40, Fugazi, it doesn't change anything. You're basically in the same spot. And when we sold our business, um, you know, at the time I was like, had a really good income and had another business and everything's fine. But I sold the business for money that didn't make, get me to that next level. Mm -hmm. And I think figuring out what those levels are for you and sort of aiming for them is worth doing. It's just an interesting conversation if anything and you can um it helps you just make decisions i think uh as you decide like what sort of projects to engage in i think like there's there's no cost to thinking a little bit bigger and more expansive and more aggressively and i think by not doing it you can do the same level of work but expose yourself to completely different outcomes so i guess it's kind of an insurance policy in that sense yeah. Yeah. I've always been a big fan of biographies and autobiographies. And there's like, there's a, a standard cookie cutter way where it's like from New York, went to New York university, <laughs> worked in New York, you know, sat on the bank of New York, 
mm-hmm. <laughs> on the board, um, became governor of New York. And I'm like, yeah, that person became, you know, an elite person and, and, and everything. And they, they, they checked all those like really high elite boxes, but there wasn't a lot of like very, there wasn't a lot of a hero's journey along the way. There wasn't a lot of like interesting stuff in the story. And then you could look at someone else where it's like, you know, I was here, I was there, blah, 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 cool life, crazy stuff. And then they eventually, hopefully, you know, end up on the the board of the Bank of New York anyway. And they just sort of took a different path to get there. And so I hope that that's what you're kind of encouraging uh, your community to do is to eventually kind of check those boxes of the normal elite, if that's what they're into, uh, and just know that they're taking a, a more fun way to get there. That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, because there's an incredible density to a lot of people who have these extreme outcomes. Like, for example, if you are like if you grew up with parents that had like were high professionals and so like you had like a childhood full of like quality advice about like career and school, they facilitated you into a world class institution and then you got a job at an elite tech company where you were around elite people. Um, you could like easily cut 10 years off a career there because then you start a company and like all that information and knowledge, you just stamp it out in your, on your own time. And so it's one of the things I've really, you know, sort of noticed, like when you look at where people are at and how long it takes them to get there, um, that those know how experiences, not like reading books, but actually like working with elite people, you know, living with elite parents, like these things have obviously i think an incredible uh like predictive factor on what kind of business you're going to be able to create it's something that i'm fighting against right now because you know the last time i was in a very high pressure situation where i was accountable and i had tons of employees and everything was when i was freaking 27 you know uh and the next business i grew grew to the exact same revenue level and so I do have this concern right now. We're addressing it through uh, advisors, mentors, business coaches, et cetera, because I don't want to reach my own Peter principle where I reach a level of my own incompetence, you know, cause I haven't worked inside of elite institutions. So I don't know what it looks like. And I think that that's a, a big liability in a lot of our careers. So, I mean, that's not, not the, what you were setting me up for, but it's definitely something that's been, been on my mind. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've heard you talk about the Peter principle, uh, in podcast episodes several times. Um, what, what, what is that principle? The basic idea is like, it was written as a joke, which is like, why is everyone that I work with an asshole or why are (laughs) they all incompetent? You have to like, try to explain this. And it's a very good question. Yeah. So a very uh, common situation would say like, if you're a really good individual contributor, say you're like a great developer, eventually, you know, in, in a traditional organization, someone's going to say to you, you know what you should do? You should manage these other developers. And if you get to that point and you do a good job, they're going to come up to you and say, you know what you should do? You should be the CTO. And if, like, they're going to keep pushing you up until you re- literally reach the level of your own incompetence. It typically happens at the management layer. So, you're a really good coder and then you become a manager and you're just a shit manager and you piss everybody off and you stay there because you can't go any higher. And that's kind of the, the Peter principle, but it can happen 
I like to think of it across all of our lives, you know, like these kind of things, like there's so much, I think in our culture, experiential knowledge is really underrated. I love this little anecdote that Seth Godin tells where, you know, an entrepreneur wants to learn how to grow a hundred million dollar company. His advice was like, well, go, go run one, you know, don't try to build one, go run one. And, and then you'll really feel it in your bones, like riding a bike. Um, and I do see, like, I hang around with a lot of entrepreneurs that are much more talented than me and you can see it like it's, you know, at first it's hard to admit, but then you're just like, yeah, that guy's just way better entrepreneur than I am. And I think that's, that's cool. It's kind of a roadmap for how to get better. Yeah. I can tell you that this, this whole idea of, um, thinking of the next level beyond just niche websites and how to be like a, a real, how, how to do the generational wealth thing really resonates with me a lot. Like I grew up in, um, you know, in a downtown core of one of the world's biggest financial centers. And I know all about, you know, private golf clubs with hundred year wait lists. I have friends that their mm -hmm. dads are the ambassador. I have, you know, friends that, uh, their dads are on the, you know, the, the board of the bank and, and all that type of stuff. And, uh, just like, you know, insane, in, insane houses and stuff like that. So I always, and I, and growing up in that financial center, I knew that I could just, you know, get a job at, at a bank or at a, a big five accounting, big five consulting, whatever, and just start climbing. And that's what a lot of my friends are currently doing. But I never wanted to be that New York, New York, New York, New York guy. I always <laughs> want, I always wanted to at very least be the guy that gets sent to the gets sent to the Hong Kong office for five years, comes back leveled up, has an interesting story. I always wanted to take a little bit more of that route. And I always thought that what's cool about taking that, uh, let's just call it that uh, five year Hong Kong route is that um, I think it can actually help open doors for you and get you invites to the dinner parties, so to speak, because you can only have so many New York, New York, New York guys at the dinner parties you need. That's why they invite artists. That's why they invite, uh, you know, cultural celebrities and things like that to those dinner parties 100%. Uh, because they, they need a little variety. They need people with stories. They want to feel in tune with things. And so I feel like by me living an extremely interesting life, um, that's actually going to open up doors later on because I have so many stories to tell. I speak multiple languages. I have multiple passports. I'm doing cool stuff. And I do want to eventually get back. I don't, and I'm not saying I want to like shit on my friends or something and like somehow beat them, but I, I, I want to get back with them and be back part of that country club crowd and, you know, elite crowd and stuff like that. But I just want to take a different path to get there. 100%. And you know, I, it's I've seen that play out so many times and it's it's fascinating. Invariably, the New York, New York, New York guy has that wistful look in his eye when you tell him about the summer you spent in Barcelona or the year you lived in Thailand sure. or Mexico. A lot of these uh, people, they can't afford it from a social financial perspective. They simply can't afford it because their entire schema, their income is dependent on them continuing to perform in their career. Um, maybe they can't afford it because you know, the terms of their life where they're going to be in one place and they're going to hustle for this one big company. And, um, yeah, they, for whatever reason, that, that idea that you're just going to downshift from all that, just so you can spend the summer in Barcelona, is just not going to happen. So right. I've definitely been to that where I, you know, recently was at one of the most elite country clubs in America. And I mean, 
you could just see how, how these guys like couldn't believe it, right? And they just thought it was so cool. And of course it is. Um, you know, it was only very, very recently, not when a lot of these guys made their decisions that you could actually do this. And I think that that stair stepping back to the West vis-a-vis low cost living is this exciting new opportunity to build a career and to kind of have your cake and eat it too. Cause you get the wealthy experience early. And if you don't, don't get too into, uh, intoxicated by it and get stuck there, you can gradually work your way back, um, to yeah. the country club cloud if you, if you so desire. And that's the one risk is that you just spend so much time in Brazil or the Philippines that you just kind of burn out and chill and, and just yeah. live the rest of your life there. Not that it has to be that sad or whatever, like that actually could just be a better life for you. But, um, it's kind of a interesting balance, you know? I agree. It is. It's a, it's a really, there's no real good answers to it. It's just, it's tough to make these big overarching decisions. But to your point, you know, when you describe your journey, like, I think there's a lot of like just intrinsic value in doing things that you're personally interested in and not sort of mortgaging it to somebody else to make the calls. I think there's a incredible dignity in deciding what you want to do with your life and fucking owning it. And one of the things I think about, like I, my buddy RJ jumped into my head, who's like a serial CEO, but he has these startups and he's just this absolute hustler who's lived everywhere. You can't mention a city that he hasn't spent a month in and uh, hang out with him in Austin all the time. And, you know, I just think you just hang out with these people that have this incredible self-possession and dignity. Um, and then you go to these elite country clubs and it's, they don't have it in the same way. And I think that, mm. you know, what's, what's it worth to you? Because y'all got like a nicer golf course. I don't know. It's pretty easy to get a nice golf course. That's a simple problem to solve. So I think, um, the other thing, just on the note of country clubs, <laughs> a lot it. of country club culture is really about already being wealthy and not wanting to be embarrassed about it. Um, and so like being in a country club is a safe space to be wealthy, uh, in particular inherited wealth. So I've, uh, you know, had the opportunity, I spend the time on a daily basis with people who've got uh, very impressive self-made generational wealth. Let's call it, say it again. And th they're just a different breed that, than the country club people. It's just a night and day. And so I think that that's worth pointing out too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any other things that you want to talk about before we uh, just uh, start talking about uh, dynamite jobs? No, no, I think this has been uh, a really w lovely interview to, I didn't expect to go down memory lane or whatever, but uh, <laughs> I'm glad for the opportunity because uh, it was just really special and it's just so cool, like uh, being back kind of abroad after COVID and like my favorite part about this community is just like how interesting the people are and all the stories you get to tell. So I, I'm, I'm like projecting the, like the 15 people I'm going to meet tonight and just like all the crazy shit they've done in business and in life and like how we just continue to see each other because we have that flexibility. Um, I think that that is, you know, what I'm most proud of when I think about, you know, the, the kind of social side of, of like doing a podcast and having a community is just like the kind of amazing people and the way that they've made it work, um, I think is, is really inspiring to me. 
Yeah, absolutely. I love Barcelona. Spent a couple months there myself. It's not bad. Um, so I'm thinking, I'm thinking, uh, I deserve a discount code for the DC, and I'm thinking I need a sure. promo code for uh, Dynamite Jobs to to share with everyone. Uh, sure, just write my, Vince get... at Dynamite Circle. He'll give you a discount. Vance, man. Vance, or is Vince a guy? <laughs> no, Vince is uh, the community manager. Ah, okay. Yeah, so he, he'll hook you up. Okay, yeah, maybe let's actually do uh, a promo code. So tell everyone a little bit about Dynamite Jobs and uh, some of the stuff where people can can get involved with what you have going on. Yeah, I mean, Dynamite Jobs is essentially um, this this new startup we started a couple years ago in earnest as a way to uh, wade a toe into the water, something that has the potential to be a little bit bigger. And uh, yeah, we managed to get ourselves to a million dollar run rate this year. It's our second year in business and um, yeah, we're just like super passionate about the space. It's basically, you know, a remote recruiting service, um, but it's still a startup in the sense that, you know, we don't really know where it's going to go or what's going to happen. We just know there's going to be more remote work and that we've been a part of it since day one. It was sort of the initial spark that um, got the whole thing going. And so it's kind of fun to have a business in the space now. So yeah, we just, basically been working hard on it every day. We got a meeting with my accountant here in 30 minutes and, you know, just a daily grind of just trying to run a quality business. Um, but yeah, that my job sort of sits in the market as, um, basically the sorts of companies I've been describing these like sub 100 kind of bootstrapped, interesting internet businesses. Essentially those are the clients we serve. Mm-hmm. And uh, people can can go to you guys to get their first remote job, right? They can look at your at your listings. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think that's one thing that separates us is a lot of our employers are much more open minded about hiring people with less experience. There's a lot of entry and mid level jobs on our site. And the website URL again is dynamitejobs.com. And yeah, we don't accept jobs that are like have location requirements. So we do accept jobs that have time zone requirements, but uh, it's all remote. I love it. It's um, it's like the gold mining, and you're uh, you're selling shovels. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, it's a brutally competitive business. Uh, I often question the wisdom of starting a job board when we could do so many other things. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a it's a brutally competitive business. There's no loyalty, you know what I mean, in job boards. You're just going to go to wh- whoever's going to bring you the candidates. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this constant fight to have the best candidates, essentially. Awesome, Dan. Well, this has been uh, a really, really fun conversation for me. Um, I feel like I've made it now. I interviewed Dan from Tropical NBA. <laughs> you did a great job of it, too. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man.